I'm Nick Newton, joined by Will Miles. Welcome to Stand Up and Holler on this week's episode. The Gators are roadkill after being run over in Lexington. Special teams issues uh, show up once again. What's fixable for 2023 on offense? We know where the discussion's been this week, but let's focus on what we can actually fix for 2023, and we'll wrap up with a quick look at Vanderbilt. Will, let's... uh, you know, before we dive into it, I know neither one of us is super pumped up for this episode. <laughs> this is a tough game, man. It's one of the tougher games of the Billy Napier era so far. I thought we were getting Utah light in Kentucky. Uh, I think we got just plain old Utah against Kentucky. That, that was pretty rough, man. Pretty rough day. But we got Utahed. I don't know whether you I don't know whether Kentucky I actually think Kentucky's better than Utah. That was one of the things people took umbrage with my preview article where I called this the Gators toughest test so far. And I got a lot of did you forget we played Utah? And it's like, no, I'm not a moron. I think Kentucky's a pretty good team. And I think when you're facing the third string quarterback for Utah, I think Kentucky's a better team. Now I expected Kentucky to be able to attack through the air, and it turned out they just didn't have to. Right. Like, yeah, like, De- like Devin Leary to. wasn't very good, but they didn't even have to try because Florida's run defense was so porous. And so it's funny because the the discussion points coming out of it, like on Gators Breakdown the other night, Dave and I spent like 45, 50 minutes talking about the offense and then maybe five minutes glossing over the defense. The defense was roadkill. They got like you mentioned, they, they got absolutely destroyed on the ground in this one. Just big plays. Boom, boom, boom. All over the place. I was at my kids flag football game. You're texting me what's happening. I'm like, dude, spoiler alert. And then I started getting texts from everybody else. I'm like, oh, screw it. Just tell me. Tell me what's going on with this massacre. Because <laughs> there's no doubt about what's happening now that I, you know, now that I know what's going on, now that my pocket's blowing up. So, um, you know, yeah, it was it was a rough one, obviously. And, uh, you know, the, the biggest thing I, I think. The thing that disappoints me the most out of all of it is I got back maybe like halfway through the third quarter and you're down by two scores and there just didn't feel like there was a sense of urgency. Now, I think in many ways that's because this offense isn't capable of really having a sense of urgency of just like going downfield and like, you know, but they never go no huddle. They never really sort of like, you know, really look like they're they're moving that hard and then afterwards you think about it, shamar james says yeah we really weren't ready for this one it's like okay well that's a problem um you know i, I think i'm gonna write that off to uh maybe a, a 19 year old kid being 19 years old saying something like that i, I said that, it the next day in his press conference yeah I, I i that's a that's a real issue if that's actually uh the the feeling amongst the team sometimes yeah. i think sometimes you get they, they have to say something in front of the camera sometimes and <laughs> You well, that's the wrong week. thing to say. Well, to we say saw... you weren't ready to play in a big SEC game, not not the best, uh, not the best thing to say. And, well, we and saw, again, Napier said in the press conference on Monday, Napier uh, almost almost cracked the press conference, getting a little <laughs> sharp uh, a couple times there. It's twenty twenty three, just getting that little shot in. But again, so I get I get the frustration where we're from the fan base i get the frustration from billy napier standpoint uh with the team and the team itself hey i i don't know if every every time they're being put in the best position here so you could it's really you can go all angles right now there's plenty of uh plenty of room for criticism right now but let's call it a bluegrass kick and will we'll kick it off <laughs> 33 to 14 Third consecutive loss to the Wildcats, not to pile on here, but that's four out of six in the series to Kentucky. The Gators have dropped uh, the last several years of a 31-game win streak probably masked the fact that this really became a series in the last decade here since Mark Stoops has been in town pretty much. Because if you want to break down the six wins Florida's had over the last 10 years against Kentucky, 2019, you have the the Trask, uh, the bailout, Basically, Felipe gets hurt. Trask comes in, and the Kyle Trask era takes off for a couple of years. 2017, Florida ekes out a one-point win after Kentucky. Uh, I believe, was that the one they forgot to cover the guy in the end zone there in 2017? 2015, 14-9. That was a tight, ugly win as well. And, it, and 2014 is really arguably where this game just stopped being that automatic W on the Gators' schedule. Uh, the Gators survived a controversial overtime. 36 to 30 wins. So even four of those six wins the Gators have in the last decade against Kentucky were hard earned and they've only they've crushed Kentucky twice in the last decade. So I, I, I did say in the episode, in the preview episode here, this isn't your daddy's Kentucky, right? This is a new series. We have to start viewing this as a different series. And I think 
getting smacked for the fourth time in six years. We got to start paying attention. Now, I hear those of you out there who say, if Florida's doing what Florida's supposed to do, Kentucky's not going to be a problem. I'm not anticipating a, a big game out of Kentucky in Athens, for example. I don't think they're too worried in Athens this weekend. But what we saw on Saturday from these Wildcats, Will, uh, was pretty amazing. Davis just ran all over the Gators, 280 yards rushing, four total touchdowns, three on the ground, uh, becomes the first SEC player to record at least 250 scrimmage yards and four scrimmage touchdowns in a game since 2019, according to ESPN Stats and Info. Uh, 206 of those yards came before the half, Will, including a monster 75-yarder after a special teams penalty. We'll talk about that. Will, one of the things I was texting you was I just started counting. 10-plus 10, 10 yards uh, uh, runs by uh, Ray Davis in the in the first seven drives. He ripped off eight of them. This defense, which is something that I, I thought we can count on. I was there. I was there. I was ready to say we can count on them. And I almost feel like that line from uh, – I remember the, Sil, the Silvio Dante impression from the Sopranos when he's doing the Godfather impre- impression – just when I thought I was out, they pulled me back in. He always did that in the Sopranos. I like that one. That's what I feel like here. I felt like I was finally past not believing in this defense. And, and I'm right back to where I was. We'll see. We'll see. It's a week-to-week venture right now with this defense again. That was a terrible performance. And it really felt like I was watching the 2021 LSU game all over again. Yeah, I mean, I think so. One of the things, the reason I picked Kentucky by two touchdowns in this one is that they have a much more explosive offense than the other teams that they had played, right? Utah right now is 125th with only 13 plays of 20 plus yards. Tennessee 69th with 22 plays of 20 plus yards. Kentucky is 10th with 33 plays of 20 plus yards. A lot of those through the air. Mm-hmm. And in the this game specifically, they got them on the ground. But again, it's like I said, they they didn't have to go to the air because they were getting it on the ground. And look, they did some interesting things. They they did some gap runs that they hadn't necessarily shown on tape. Seth Varnador did a really nice job of pointing that out. And the thing I pointed out in my post-game article was they aggressively had bunched formations and then sent their wide receivers after Florida's safeties. And they realized that Florida was going to play their deep safeties, that they were afraid of getting beat deep on passes. And they said, hmm. Let's isolate Ray Davis on Florida's corners, and we're going to force Florida's cornerbacks to make tackles. And multiple, multiple times, Florida's corners didn't make tackles. We're taking circuitous routes. There was the one play where it looked like Jalen Kemper tried to tried to tried to tackle his own defensive end instead of Ray Davis, and Davis ran right by. There was the one where Jason Marshall sort of took a big loopy. Uh, loopy route towards Ray Davis and all of a sudden he's off for 75 yards um, and there were other ones where like Kimber was in the right position but he allowed the, the Ray Davis to get to the outside instead of funneling it back to the inside turned into an 11 or 12 yard 12 yard gain I think it was on Kentucky's first offensive play of the game look you give up 329 yards rushing you ain't gonna have a whole lot of success it was it was 33 points it felt worse than that um, but again, there's a lot of stuff going on that was wrong here, not just defense and in, and the defense, this is the thing is that Florida has not had a unit that's been able to pick up the other unit at any point in the mm-hmm. last couple of years, right? The, the offense would be would be humming pretty well last year and the defense just couldn't get a stop right. And the offense had to be perfect in order to do it this year, the defense has, basically has to be perfect all the time. And I think in some ways you start to press when that becomes the case. You know, once you're down three, nothing, okay, we got to get off the field. Once you're down 10, nothing, wow, we really need to get off the field. You start to get undisciplined. You start to jump out of your gaps. And all of a sudden that's when the big plays really start hitting. So I, I, I'm not ready to throw out the, throw out the, the confidence that I have in the defense at this point. All I will say is that all off season long, I've been talking about explosive plays against Austin Armstrong's defenses. And I think that was papered over a little bit in the first four games of the year because none of those teams really had explosive offenses. Kentucky has an explosive offense, and all of a sudden we started to see that, and the cracks started to seep through. Now, look, Vanderbilt's got a pretty explosive offense too. We'll talk about that in a little bit. So there's still some there's still some work and some things they can prove this week. The bigger thing is, is that Florida apparently doesn't know how to play a road game. 
Um, this is now two years in a row where Florida just has not looked good on the road. You've got the two games this year where they had to go to Utah and now have to go to Kentucky, look unprepared, undisciplined, and really, you know, I think both of us will admit that regardless of what the stats say in that Utah game, that the defense did not necessarily play great in that one. I wasn't like sitting there like going, oh, this is a great defensive performance. It's, you know, Utah kind of put it in neutral when they got up by 17 points. Right. And all of a sudden it was like, all they didn't right, play well, much of the second half. Basically. Yeah. yeah. And and that's really where you're sort of looking at the stats going, oh, well, we only gave up 200 and something yards in that game. Well, but if it had been close, would Utah have, you know, pushed down the accelerator pedal and would Florida have been able to stop them? That I don't know. So, yeah, I mean, look, I, I think it's one game. Ray Davis, it's not like he was, <laughs> I mean, 9.1 yards per rush for Kentucky in this one. But I think Ray Davis coming in was averaging something like seven and a half. So it's not like. Um, it's not like Kentucky wasn't doing this to everybody else. It just so happens that what we looked at coming in and the question coming in was, all right, well, Kentucky hasn't played anybody yet of Florida's quality. And now the question is, well, is Florida really quality or, or, or is Kentucky really that good? I think we're going to find out a little bit this week um, with Kentucky going to Georgia. And then I think we're going to find out in a couple of weeks with Florida going on the road to South Carolina, really sort of what some of those problems are or aren't for, for both of those teams. Yeah, really just really discourage, discouraging day, particularly on the tackling front with this defense. Uh, I, I'm not happy with what I saw, obviously. I, I do think Davis is a tough running back. I think he's going to put up numbers against other teams. I don't think we're going to see that type of performance. Uh, it'll be very interesting to see them play against Georgia this weekend. But I am I'm I think we just gave uh, Mr. Ray Davis a career day there, Will. Well, look, so I, I think there's a couple of things. One is that um, defense is – so what we've asked for is we've asked for a team that's operationally excellent and doesn't make the – doesn't make consistent mistakes over and over and over again. And we can look at the defense and we can say, ah, oh, they should have done that better, they should have done that better. But those are scheme things. That is something where I think, okay, young players in positions they haven't been in before are going to make mistakes, right? And I'm okay with that. And I think I think for the most part the reason the focus has been on the offense and the reason the focus has been on special teams is because you're going to have games like this with teams that grow up over time. Like if you think about the 2007 Florida team, there were times the defense couldn't stop anybody. And that those that had that team had guys like Joe Hayden and Brandon Spikes and guys that we know are great players. And that 2007 team still couldn't stop anybody um, when it really came down to it, especially towards the end of the year. So I look at it and I go, all right, this is part of the growing pains. We'll see how these guys develop. It wasn't like they were constantly jumping off sides. There weren't guys who were wide open all the time running down the field. Obviously, there were a couple of big plays and consistent running plays where Florida was getting manhandled. Um, so they need to do better, but it wasn't operational. It wasn't like they were scrambling all over the place. The only one that you can think of as operational is the 13 guys they had on defense on the red zone play where, uh, where they missed a tackle and Kentucky still got a touchdown, which is embarrassing. And that points to something operational, but um, you know, for the most part, it was pretty clean. And so I'm not like massively like, I'm not panicked about Florida's defense. I'm just looking at it going, I never expected this to be a top 20 defense. And the fact that they were playing that way was interesting, but also indicative of some of the opponents that they played. And now they just played a better opponent, got hit in the mouth. We'll see how they respond because now they're like, okay, that's what a real SEC opponent is. <laughs> and not not like Tennessee who came in and had all the operational issues that Florida's had when they've gone on the road. And so I think the level of focus that they need to have when they go on the road, hopefully they see that. Hopefully they see they're going to need to be a little bit tougher in order to win in the SEC. And then, look, I, I, they're not going to be perfect. They're young. They're going to make mistakes. They're going to give up some big plays. Austin Armstrong kind of asks them to play defenses that at times are going to give up some big plays. You're going to have to live with that. The question is going to be, um, you know, you're not going to win a lot of games this this season if you're giving up 33 points with this offense. And so that's going to be the question is, can they keep teams to 13, 14, 17 points? Because that's probably what it's going to take to win a bunch of ball games. Well, at the very least, we do we did see a new floor with this <laughs> defense. We we are very aware of a new floor now. So they they set they set that bar. At this they're not going to give up fifty two points to to Furman or or whatever, right? So there there's uh, there's reason for hope. There's reason for optimism. And if you're looking at it, it's not as though this has been a consistent problem. We just had a problem pop up, and the question is, are they going to learn something? 
from what they experienced here and tighten up? Or are we just going to see this as a recurring theme? If it's a recurring theme, then you start to get concerned. If it's a one-off, then okay. Yeah, we shall see. Just when I thought I was out, Will. Just when I thought I was out, they pulled me back in. All right, uh, tough day here for the offensive line as well. Uh, the UK front absolutely whipped the offensive line up front there. But it really does help when you can build a 23 to nothing lead early. And it's the second quarter, and the Gators are going to be playing catch-up for the rest of the day. So the the defensive line could pin their ears back a little more. But we have to come to terms. I know there's a lot of chatter about the Billy Napier OC question, which I actually do want to talk about that a little bit later in the episode, Will. But for now, just keep the focus on, on the offense itself at the moment. We have to acknowledge what we are this year. This offense, we've used the word, I think the the kind word we've been using of late has been limited. It is a limited offense with limited abilities, and it's not built to play from behind. It is absolutely not built to play from behind. Mertz is not the type of quarterback you want dropping back 30 to 40 times a game, uh, three sacks on a day for Kentucky to go with plenty of pressure. I, I will give that. So before we dive into really analyzing anything about the running game or merch, I do want to acknowledge that the offensive line uh, had a very difficult day up in Lexington. Yeah, I think so. I think there are sacks and running plays that you can pin on the offensive line, but I think there are sacks and maybe even a lack of checks that you can pin on, on Mertz or other people. Um, the offensive line this year, if you look at line yards per rush, which is a metric that is designed to measure how responsible the offensive line is for the yardage that you get in the running and on running plays, it's basically zero to four is kind of what that number is going to be at. They were 3.2 last year. They're 3.1 this year. So they haven't, they're not that much worse in terms of doing their job overall. Where they're a lot worse is in stats like power success rate. Last year, they were successful 80% of the time. This year, it's 63. Stuff rate, they were stuffed 17% of the time. Last year, they're being stuffed this year, 22%. So what's happening is, is the offensive line on a play-to-play play basis is doing its job, at least in the running game. What they're not doing is the third and fourth and short, they are not converting. And that has that's two things. One is I think they're not as talented and they're getting beat up front. But the other part of that is Anthony Richardson got a lot of first downs last year on third and fourth downs where it was just a big 250-pound dude was pounding into the line of scrimmage. And, you know, and that extra blocker makes a difference, right? And there is no extra blocker right now because Graham Mertz isn't isn't doing that run. I pointed there was one play specifically that I pointed out in in my post game article where they had a four man front and um, five blockers. And last year that's an automatic quarterback draw, automatic. They 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 they, they audible out to that. And I'm actually a little bit surprised that they're not doing that with Mertz at all, right? Mertz isn't like a statue back there. He's capable of moving. If you've got a five-on-four advantage up front and it's a first and ten or a second and seven, and they're giving you that look with just four guys and you've got five blockers, go get it, right? Now, maybe they don't have confidence that they can actually go do it. But look, if you can't block five-on-four, you got big, big problems. Is, is Mertz I capable of running into uh, – uh into some traffic though, or is he capable of, of tucking it and running when he's got some space? I mean, I think it, those are different questions, right? Maybe, but I mean, you have to take what the defense gives you. And to your point, you said earlier, he's limited. So um, there, there are just, there are the throws are not going far down the field at all. And so I I don't know that you're getting a whole lot of extra benefit having him drop back and throw the ball versus trying a quarterback draw when you've got a numbers advantage. And then there's some other things that they can do to really help him. One of the things I went and looked at some advanced some some advanced stats for for the running back. So last year, Etienne and Johnson averaged 2.5 and 2.4 yards before contact, respectively. This year they're at 2.05 and 2.29. Hmm. So they're getting hit sooner than they did last year. But ETN is averaging 3.92 yards after contact compared to 2.2 for Johnson. Last year, it was 3.64 um, for ETN, and Johnson was 3.12. So Johnson was still less elusive last year, but he got considerably more yards after contact because he was kind of able to get up ahead of steam. And as of right now, they're not allowing Johnson to get that head of steam. And so ETN is clearly, clearly the better back overall. Um, Montreal Johnson's averaging 3.3 yards per carry in games where he's not rushing against McNeese State. And ETN's at 5.4. So 
you can do some things. Now, it sounds like ETN's questionable for this game against Vanderbilt, has an upper body injury. So we'll see. You know, obviously that's a big loss if Florida doesn't have him out there. I suspect he's going to be out there. That that dude needs to be the starter. He needs to be getting 20 carries. I don't think there's any doubt about that because you're limited, right? It's it's not a matter of, oh, well, we want to make sure the I get that you want to make sure he's healthy the entire year. You want to get the most out of him, all that sort of stuff. But now's the time. You got to get this win against Vanderbilt. You got to get this win against South Carolina. If you're five and two going to that game against Georgia and ETN's a little bit banged up, well, those that probably wasn't a game you were winning anyway, right? So sit him out, get him healthy for the game against Missouri, game against Florida State, game against Arkansas. Um you know, I, I don't necessarily like the fact that I'm talking about making that Georgia game a sacrificial loss, but in the grand scheme of things, that might be what you need to do in order to make sure that you uh, secure some of these more uh, winnable games. Yeah, I think with, with the running game, I, I've been harping on it all season. I really would like to see ETN and Johnson with at least 30 combined carries. I think I'm with you on that split. I think ETN needs to be touching the ball 20 times in the backfield. Well, the- uh, love, love Johnson, love what he's able to do, but I think those stats uh, you talked about the contact before or the amount of yards they're getting uh, prior to contact. I, I think that does favor ETN. But over overall, we've talked about it with ETN. Guys, special. I think Johnson's a great running back. I think we got two great running backs here, but there there's something a little different with ETN when he gets the ball in his hands. And we did see them, by the way. We'll talk about Mertz here, 25 of 30 for 244, two TDs. Ten of those were were receptions by ETN and Johnson. So they were getting the ball in their hands on the passing game, but not too much in terms of yardage. I think 60 combined yards uh, between them on those 10 receptions. So you're talking about some dump-off passes at the last minute. Certainly we know one of those ETN receptions was a uh, just a, you know, Brett Favre-like moment from Mertz where he just kind of <laughs> – whipped his head around saw etn dumped the ball in his lap on a fourth down and had a little bit of a miracle play for a first down even though he had a wide open receiver according to jesse palmer and as you pointed out in your article this past weekend here will so it's tough for me to to really get uh, too hyped up about the running back uh situation when you're down 23 nothing because you're probably adjusting on the fly at that point with your game plan but overall this team needs to be – I still believe this team needs to be focused on the run. That's where your weapons are. Mertz, with the with the offensive line struggling anyway, and Mertz dropping back. Mertz is not great under pressure. I know he's putting up some nice-looking numbers at the end of the day. when he, t- he I mean, 25 and 30 on paper looks great. But we're not getting deep plays down the field off of our passing game. And I – I, I like the fact that Napier has been able to manage Mertz into not having too many killer turnovers. We saw the one turnover this weekend here, the interception where, yeah, he did throw it right on Boardingham. Boardingham should have caught it. Similar to the to the Pearsall situation in Utah, but just like that situation in Utah, there's no room for error. So if there's if there's anything that's a little bit off, there's three blue jerseys around Boardingham if you were to freeze it and look at the image, Will. And it's just a it, you're putting it in the tight windows constantly with Mertz in some of these situations, even when you're even when you're staying short. So I, I think that there needs to be some evaluation here with Mertz because I like the fact they protect him. On the other hand, if we're going to treat him like a young, exper- inexperienced quarterback, and this is the result we're getting, at what point do do you seek to give other people opportunities as well? So that that's kind of where I'm getting at with the quarterback position going forward. So I think there's a couple of things there. One is that Mertz um, provides zero in the running game. We already talked about what do you do when there's four guys up front and you got five offensive linemen. He's actually a net negative in the running game. In fact, if you subtract his numbers for the first five games from the running game and you add Anthony Richardson's, all of a sudden Florida's got a top 30 running offense on a yards per play basis. So just going from Richardson to Mertz, look, the offensive line is struggling. There's no doubt about that. But one of the reasons the offensive line is struggling is it doesn't have Anthony Richardson back there to bail it out. If you look at last year's numbers, the average depth of target for Richardson was 11.3 yards per attempt. It's 6.5 for Mertz. That's one. That's almost one and a half yards mm. below 
the the second worst <laughs> average depth of target in the SEC, which is actually Carson Beck, which is one reason why I think Kentucky's going to do better this week than than you thought. Now, if you look at it, the amount of pressure that Mertz has faced this year, 26.8% of his dropbacks, he's faced pressure. Richardson in 2023 was 32.4% of his dropbacks. So Richardson was actually under pressure more than Mertz. They both got they both had a 30% success rate on passing downs. Uh passing downs are second and seven or longer, or third or third or fourth and five or longer. Now, Mertz has an overall higher success rate, but what that says to me is a lot of his short throws that gain more than five yards on first down or being counted in that success rate. So basically he's doing a really good job of getting them to like second and four mm-hmm. or, or, or even third and five. Right. But what ends up happening is, is that you get to say even third and two, the offensive line isn't able that they got a, I, I mentioned earlier, they're getting stuffed more often. They're not doing good in power situations, which means third and two, fourth and one become, become plays where the offensive line can't just get the automatic first down, which means the drive stall, right? You get third and ones where you get stuffed. All of a sudden it's third and three. You got to punt the ball away. You don't have enough confidence in Mertz. You end up in like third and five a lot with four yard throws. You get any sort of procedural penalty. And now you're third and nine there. I can't tell you, I need to actually go through it, but in the, uh, in the Utah game, I think there were four plays where Florida ran a play that came up one yard short of a first down, and two or three of them happened after a five-yard procedure penalty where they came up a yard short of the first down. So, look, Florida's offense is almost identical to what it was last year. The difference is, is the offense was way more explosive through the air. So 1.8 um, EPA or uh, points per play added or PPA versus 1.32 in the air. Now look, 1.32 is sort of, eh, 1.8 is really, really good. So Richardson was making big plays downfield. His average depth of target was twice as long as Mertz's was. And to your point, if you've got a guy who's got three or four years of experience, you should be going downfield, even if you're getting pressured. But when it comes to pressure, he's getting pressured less than Anthony Richardson did last year. Now, the thing that I think really jumps out to me is he's only got two throwaways the entire year. So in five games, he's only thrown the ball out of bounds to avoid a sack twice. Richardson did it 22 times last year in in 12 games. So he was doing it almost twice a game. Mertz has done it two times so far. I think that's telling. I, I, I sort of talked myself into this or talked myself through this during Gators Breakdown the other night, but he's got this great completion percentage. But is that masking the fact that he's not going downfield the defense wins a few of those and every once in a while you got to throw it out of bounds like there there are times where you're going to get sacked there's no doubt but one of the reasons why i include sacks in my yards above replacement stat is because i think quarterbacks control a lot of that they control it by whether they check to the right play they control it by whether they see the blitz they control it by whether they get the ball out quick enough whether it's complete or not just getting the ball out in a in a general vicinity of a receiver so that you live to see another day to where it's second and 10 rather than second and 18 is something that every quarterback can do, but not everyone does do. And we've really seen that this year. And look, if you, for all the talk about the accuracy of Mertz, if you depth adjust his accuracy, his, his completion percentage drops from 79 to 55% because he's throwing screens 11.6% of the time versus 3.4% for Richardson last year. So the screen game and all that stuff they're trying to do 25 last week, 10 of 25 completions to the running backs. For 60 yards. So again, I mean, further, I, I get right? it's it's funny because you know you, you've been sending me stuff all week about about PFS rankings of different players, and they had they Mertz as the second. They had Mertz as the second most efficient quarterback last week um, in in all of Power Five. This lends more credence to my yards above replacement metric because that has him at below average, negative point three six, and zeros average on that. I I really believe that. I I think that the the amount of times they've been in second and eighteen. And the fact that sometimes it's because the offensive line can't hold up, but sometimes you got to pick up your offensive line, right? If, if Aguacan gets blown back by a guy at center and he's coming at you, chuck the ball near one of your wide receivers out, out, out on the outside into the sideline where either he can only catch it or it's out of bounds, right? Just get the ball out of there and live to have second and 10. They had a, they had a, they had a drive. It was like nine plays for 29 yards and it took like five minutes off the clock and I, I want to say that was that was um, I think I think it was just three nothing at that point. But they got they tried some weird 
weird double play action and Mertz slipped and then the ball doesn't come out. He gets sacked and all of a sudden, you know, again, nine plays for 29 yards. That's like indicative of this Florida offense. If you go back and look at it, just about all their touchdowns are nine, 10, 11 plays on the road. They haven't been very operationally efficient. They've had a bunch of penalties, false starts, all that sort of stuff. And you do that, it's going to kill you. So look, do you need to make a change? I mean, I don't know. I have no idea who's better off behind it, but this is the exact problem that I cited when I looked at the quarterbacks to start the year was that Merch doesn't add anything with his legs. He's limited in terms of what he can do through the air. And like you said, if you're going to treat him like a true freshman or a redshirt freshman out there and just take little dinks and dunks all over the place, you could see it. Kentucky crept up and I got a play coming in the article. I'm going to post in sort of what's wrong with the offense. I'm writing about that this week. And, and there's a play in there where Jonathan Odom just gets blasted and you're sitting there going, he should have been open. But he's not because everyone knows that that's the first read. Everyone knows that's where they're going. No one's afraid of getting beat over the top. And until Florida makes someone afraid that they're going to get beat over the top, that's going to keep that's going to be what happens. Everything gets constricted. Yeah, I want to be real clear of the distinction of what I said there, because I'm not necessarily saying it's time to move on from Mertz, but I'm I'm saying if you want to evaluate an area where this offense can improve right away. It's time to start. It, like, I like that we we are conservative to a point because I don't believe – I believe if Merce gets a little too crazy, mistakes are going to start to fly a little bit. I think we've done a decent job avoid, avoiding that issue. But if the alternative is we just don't move the ball, if, if you have him in there at some point, we got to dial some things up and, and, and maybe play well, a little riskier. That's, I guess that's what I'm saying. If he, if he really is that guy, they've loved them all off season. They, they think highly of him in that locker room. And I, I've said it last week too. Likeable guy. Seems like a, seems like a guy when he talks, I, I feel like he's going to be a future coach when I listen to him talk. Like he just seems like a guy that's going to be a head coach one day, but at some point, if you're going to treat him like a young quarterback, I don't see the advantage of having him out there over anyone else. So that that's he's got to bring you some sort of distinct advantage. And and what aren't we maximizing out of Mertz right now? There's got to be that that question. That's the question I'd like to see Billy go back to the table and draw up this week. I mean, I'm actually okay with a couple more turnovers if it means you're forcing the ball down the field. I'm getting there too. I, that's I, I think I think you know it's it's one of those things where it's like. There are acceptable risks and there are unacceptable risks. You don't want him chucking the ball in triple coverage, right? You don't want him trying to force the ball in. But as everything starts constricting forward, you got to take some shots. And you got to take multiple shots. It can't be, oh, one shot a quarter, right? Because then, and especially if it's unsuccessful. Now, look, they took a couple shots. They missed Douglas deep to start with. That was one where I think Mertz missed him. There's one to Pearsall where the ball hit Pearsall in the hands. The defender made a pretty nice play, but that's one that Ricky probably probably would like to get back. There was the one he missed to Khalil Jackson where he was coming across the formation and just, just airmailed it a little bit. Route, right? But again, even that crossing route isn't necessarily deep. That's sort of like that's sort of like 15 yards, maybe maybe 18 Well, the yards. way he, he was pretty open, though. If you hit that throw, that was going to be a real nice game. Oh, well, I mean, it, it's it's a nice gain and it's an explosive, but yeah. it's not like it's not. It, no one's looking at that play as a defense saying we need to back up, right? And right. that's the thing. So I think they took probably two deep shots the entire game, and then um, you know by the time you get to the third and fourth quarter when the team's down 17, 24 points, now the defense won't give up any of those deep throws. They back off a little bit. They give you a bunch of underneath stuff, and so all of a sudden you're twenty one of twenty four. But look, Mertz was two of six for 19 yards and an interception and Florida was down 16 to nothing. So, you know, I mean, we can talk all we want about efficiency and completion percentage and all that stuff. He had a 33% completion percentage while that game had any doubt to it. And then, and I get it. It's kind of unfair over, over six, six throws to evaluate somebody. But when you don't have the machinery to come back from a 16 point deficit, you, you don't have six throws to be, to be inefficient to start with you got to hit those because this offense has to hit them when when they're there and so he was inefficient in the first six throws and everything falls apart at that point and the game was basically over yeah we'll talk about that that deficit too because you look at it it was just a sloppy start from the beginning you had a holding call on a third and 15 conversion which by the way we ran on Montreal Johnson actually picked it up but it, it's 
it's uh we went back to the run after that got stuck for five yards uh, on another third and long there uh but the defense actually had to stop and Dijon Johnson gets a personal foul for leaping over the up man hey look you can look at that and say true freshman trying to make a play probably excited to be on the field but overall will that leads to the Ray Davis 75 yard touchdown run when the defense should have been off the field the offense should have the ball back that's essentially a turnover that's a free turnover essentially 10 penalties for 86 yards we saw the special teams uh we saw a special teams penalty against Utah also cost this team a touchdown at what point do we really look at this across the board on special teams and and reevaluate everything because i i know people are frustrated with the offense it was certainly frustrating uh week for the defense but the one consistent across every game this year is there's been some kind of major issue on a special teams unit and it just doesn't seem to improve much i i almost feel like i made this comment in the post game that i did on our patreon will but i feel like special teams is one of those things that's kind of baked into a team's dna it, you kind of have it or you don't type of thing. I don't see special teams typically get dramatically better for particular teams throughout the year. They can improve a little bit here and there. I'm not saying it can't change at all, but it seems like one of those things that you're either sharp on special teams or you're just not. And in this team through uh, five games here, just, just have not seen it so far on special teams. Yeah, well, look, I mean, none of us know the details as to the departure of Patrick Tony after last year, but it was pretty clear the defense didn't get much better throughout the entire year. It was what it was. And by the end of the year, Napier, I'm sure, had some really heart-to-heart conversations with Tony, and he decided it would be better off to go to the Arizona Cardinals. Um you making in season changes, unless it's just a cultural thing, you know, like the Grantham and and uh, Hevesy firings under Dan Mullen. I mean, that was one. It felt like his hand was forced, and two, you know, that was a that was a the culture is rotten. We need to get rid of these guys from the standpoint of we're about to have a mutiny. Um, if that's not happening, then then I don't see any purpose to removing a coach from the 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 organization, and really even look. Give them a full season. If the uh, if the full season is a disaster, then you go and make a change and you bring somebody else in. Same with the offensive coordinator talk, right? You went into the season saying Billy Napier is going to be the offensive coordinator. To change it after five games doesn't make any sense because you haven't prepared for that all year, all off season and that sort of stuff. So you go fresh into the next season. Now, again, I think that sort of does then set our expectations. I think our expectations should be that we have one to two horrible special team gaffes every 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 week. And that's probably what the expectations need to be. For a that team sucks. with a limited I mean, offense, that's pretty well, tough. That's pretty tough to accept right there. Because well, that that's the type of thing you clean up the special teams units. And it well, I'm not even saying you become exceptional on special teams. I'm not even thinking like that. But can we just go from a point to where it's not creating a wound uh, it, like where you're bleeding every single game on special teams? Can we just just at least get that under control where it's not no. going to be a, a problem that that's what I'd like to see from special teams at this point. I don't have any hopes in, in this turning around to become uh, a great a strength for this team at all, but it, can we get, get it to a point where it's not causing a problem, like where you're giving up a score off of it and two ugly losses so far. No, you know, what's happened. And, and this is, this is me guessing, but I'm guessing what happened is is they've got so many young guys that they had to get ready to play on offense and defense that they didn't have the time, the energy, or the reps Come to on, actually though. practice all the Come special on teams. With stuff. That. No, Come on. look, I think how it's how many bullshit. staffers do we have? How many staffers do we have? Like this 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 is not like I know there's a lot of talk about the game changer coordinator or whatever. I'm not even pointing one a finger at one person here because it's it's pretty consistent across the board on special teams. It's really – I feel like the teams that really are, are about attention attention to the special teams tend to be the ones that actually – so I agree with you that it might be an area where we don't pay a ton of attention to at the moment. But I, at this point, if it's going to create this type of an issue, it, sh- it, it at least should be something that's not harming the team week in and week out. That's not a high standard to me, right? I'm not telling you it's acceptable. I'm telling you it should be the expectation because I'm looking five games in and I'm saying nothing has changed, right? There are guys who don't know the rules. There are guys who, who 
um, are probably going to go rogue. So you're going to get some sort of kickoff return at some point. I, I had written in the Kentucky preview. I thought Barry and Brown was probably going to return one because I figured, you know, they've probably coached everybody up to where they won't screw something up on like a procedural level, but they're going to get out of their gaps or something like that. I, I think, um, look, it's pretty clear that special teams have not been a giant area of emphasis for Billy Napier. I think we can say that, right? Because if they were a giant area of emphasis, we'd have a kicker who can make who can make field goals consistently, or would have started with a kicker who can make field goals consistently. We would um, not be making ridiculous penalties where you've got two guys with the same number on the field. You would know you can't jump into the punters' protectors. Like those are penalties. You know, I, I think the discussion afterwards. I think Napier was like, "We've told people that. We've said you can't do that." Okay. Well, clearly the message ain't getting across. And that that goes back to areas of emphasis, right? And they haven't emphasized it. So the idea that they're gonna like right before Vandy be like, oh my God, we need to emphasize special teams just doesn't seem to ring true to me because one, I think there's a lot of stuff they need to fix on both the offensive and defensive side of the ball to start with. And then you just sort of go, look, like let's make sure we don't make the giant gaffes, but you can't foresee what the gaffes are gonna be. And this is one of those things like if you didn't if so you remember when all the guys were going to planet fitness because the strength the strength and conditioning program was apparently like a giant pile of rubble allegedly. and you're sitting there, and then and allegedly and all of a sudden you're getting like blown off the ball against Michigan there in 2017 about halfway through that game is not the time you start going we should really go in the weight room <laughs> like and in fact I think McElwain even made even even had some comment afterwards about how they needed to get in the weight room that week how they they had, they had struggled with being strong they need to get in the weight room and it's like if you need to get in the weight room in October or in September you're in deep crap because that needed to happen in May and June and July. And I feel like it's the same way with special teams. Like if you haven't emphasized it all off season to a point where you're making these mistakes all the time, just going, Oh, we're going to fix it in the week between Kentucky and Vanderbilt. Like that doesn't work. I didn't like, say fix it. I just said, not have it kill you. There's a difference. You get conservative with there's, there's probably different approaches. I, so, so, dial it down make it simpler make it very easy for guys to understand if it's young guys I, there there are ways to simplify things and adjust and you have it can't be the game plan can't be let's hope the defense shows up this week let's be super conservative on offense and you know we'll, we'll suffer through the special teams unit costing us an extra possession every game every critical game that matters we can't do that that's not going to win you many games you, you i agree with you i 10 I penalties agree. to go with that that's going to be a rough rough year if we continue that trend i agree with you i have yet to see evidence that this staff will do that yeah so give me give me a piece of evidence and i will change that's my opinion fair. But that's as of fair. right now, my expectation is, is that we will continue to make special teams gaffes all throughout the year yeah. to the rest of the year. We should just assume we're going to give each team somewhere between three to seven points and spot them that before the, before the game starts. I don't like that. I don't think it's acceptable. I think that's poor coaching, and I think that's poor execution. But again, I look back at the track record of what we've seen. We kept saying, let's see some improvement on defense last year, and it never improved. And you could have made the same comments. Well, we're missing coverages, and you know we don't know who we're supposed to cover and, and all that stuff. Simplify it. Only play cover two. Like, be really good at playing cover two. Or only play man-to-man -man with a single high safety. Be really good at doing that. Make it simple. Make your play calls simple. Do You know, you, you can talk about all sorts of stuff. And it just never got better. And so... Well, um, well, to quote to quote Napier this week, it's 2023, man. Get over it. <laughs> hey, let's well, let's when talk you're doing about... the same things in 2023 that you did in 2022. I'm going to bring up 2022, man. It's frustrating, man. It's frustrating. All right, let's let's really focus on an issue. I know one thing that's been hammered. It really, it, it really was hammered last year too in the offseason. I. I said I didn't put much attention on, on the fact that Billy Napier was the OC because I did not feel like that was an issue for most of the year. Uh, you know that Tennessee game I thought was one of, one of his one of the best games they had on offense last year. It's just th that defense did not help them out a whole lot. Yes, we had ups and downs. Yes, we were inconsistent, but you're not going to be perfect every time out there. But like we're talking about right now, where there clearly isn't an emphasis on the special teams. Here's the question I really have for Billy Napier going into the offseason. 
you talk about looking in the mirror, you talk about a lot of different, like they talk about evaluating across the board in, in everything they do. And we know they're going to do those things in the off season. Will. but I was trying to think of other notable head coaches and offensive coordinators. And a couple of them I look at, you look at a guy like on the high end of the spectrum, you got guys like Lincoln Riley and Ryan day where Ryan Day actually relinquished his play-calling duties this past year to, to Brian Hartline, partly because Hartline was probably going to go somewhere at some point if he didn't, but partly because Ohio State has lost back-to-back games to Michigan, which is a very big deal in Columbus, Ohio, and they have struggled in different different aspects of the game, particularly on defense. And Day's, you know, every time a, a play-caller gives up the plays, what, what's the line? I'm going to be more of a CEO. How's that defense looking at Southern Cal right now? Not so good. That's that's the talk of, of what's going on out there, even though they got a surefire number one pick at quarterback returning Heisman Trophy, and they're lighting things up on the offensive side. Lincoln Riley, you could look at those Oklahoma teams, is very similar effect, right? So not necessarily the best across the board. Definitely have their weak, weaknesses. Gus Malzahn, yo-yo, went back and forth. I'm going to call plays. I'm going to not call plays at, at Auburn. Started out at UCF. He's passed it on at UCF at this point. Jimbo Fisher. There's another coach I want to throw out there. Had held on to those play calling duties and uh, finally had to bring in Bobby Petrino in the offseason because nobody chooses to bring in Bobby Petrino, right? Probably was forced, I would guess, on that. So my point is this, Will. For Napier, in addition to grading himself, you know, through five games, I'd I'd be very interested to know what his grade of himself would be through five games. I think Napier is more than capable of calling a good offense. I think this offense is extremely limited. I think if DJ Lagway were here right now, our offense would be a lot more interesting, and Billy Napier calling plays wouldn't be a, a huge discussion. But when we're seeing right now, with the the limits of Graham Mertz and with with the fact that we are having these types of conversations about special teams, and we're seeing consistent issues pop up over and over again. The 13 men on defense, you know, the same numbers on Utah. At what point do you stop and ask yourself, is it too much? Is it too much to be worried about the offensive play call? And I, and I go back to the college football playoff last year and I hate using them as the example, but Kirby smart called a hell of a timeout on a fake punt by Ohio state. And I think if he was the defense coordinator and he had his nose in the play sheet getting ready to call, what you know, getting ready to figure out what was going to be happening uh, on the following drive or over on the bench with his defense figuring out what was going to happen on the next drive, maybe he doesn't make that call. Napier is such a process-oriented guy. It's curious to me that he would not want to fill that role of the CEO and, and potentially bring in a high-level offensive coordinator. Lord knows we have the money to do it, and it's the University of Florida – he could bring in a high level guy at that position. So are you missing an opportunity to have a high level coach on your staff? So there's a lot of ways you can slice this up. I don't think this, for me, it's not a question of Billy Napier's ability as an offensive coordinator. It's more the question of this is a big job. And is your attention too divided as the OC, which so far it appears to be that we could use help in other areas from the head coach. I mean, it could be a couple of things. I'm not sure Napier's ever really had like some high flying offense, even when he was at Louisiana, right? Those were balanced teams that, that showed significant success also had a running quarterback. Once Levi Lewis came in there and that makes a difference too, in terms of what they try to do in the running game and, and, and those sorts of things. I I think, look, uh, Napier's not a dumb guy. He's going to have an offensive coordinator next year. I don't think there's any doubt about that, but he's going to also going to get peppered as they struggle all year long about, should you have an offensive coordinator now? And, you know, there's logic that could have suggested that he could have gone and hired an offensive coordinator during this offseason. He chose not to do that. He also has decided to go with a guy who, you know, we all sort of were concerned about limitations when Mertz came in through the transfer portal. Some of those have proven to be true. I think he's actually exceeded expectations in other ways. Um, and some of that has to go to Billy Napier. But to your point, Billy Napier's job is not to make sure the offense is good. Billy Napier's job is to make sure the team wins. And so you can talk about USC's defense, but they're 5-0 right now. 
And so if Lincoln Riley can score 60 points it. a game and they can get away with it Oklahoma style and, you know, get to the playoff. Three Heismans, a quarterback. Yeah. And no, nobody's going to sit there. And I mean, yes, USC will eventually start looking at Lincoln Riley going, well, maybe he can't get over the hump or something like that. Kind of like what the rumblings were at Oklahoma. But the guy's going to the college football playoff, right? Or at least he has an opportunity to do that. Florida's three and two. We're not going anywhere near the college football playoff right now. And so from that standpoint. And the offense is not cooking like USC's yeah. is cooking. But even that, so right? Like if, if, that. The, if the defense yeah. was absolutely lights out, if, if that game had been 14 to nine or something because Florida's defense had really stepped up, we're having a different conversation, right? I mean, the conversation is, wow, look at, look at that side of the ball. Look at how it's improved. Look at what you can do. One side picked up the other one and Hey, it was a hard fought loss and that's okay. That like, that's the thing, right? It was a complete system failure against Tennessee or against, uh, against Kentucky. It was a complete system failure against Utah to have two of those in the first five games is very disappointing. So, yeah, I mean, I think, look, anytime there's a crack, in in the team any anytime there's a there's a clear sign of organizational malaise i don't even know what you call it anytime there's something that's happening operationally that isn't correct then that's going to fall on the ceo going to fall on the head coach and it's and it's um responsibilities are being delegated to people who are not taking care of the job right and so you know that's the question is if you bring in an offensive coordinator, now you get Napier's hands in special teams and things like that, but now you're also not delegating. So, you know, I, I see it both ways. Like I think there are advantages to having two offensive line coaches. I think there are advantages to having, um, to having Napier's the offensive coordinator, assuming that he's a very good offensive coordinator. I think you can look back in the history though, and suggest, look, he's not Lincoln Riley when it comes to offense, like Lincoln Riley, very clearly has had number one offenses, Heisman trophy winners at quarterback. He's taken, guys like Jalen Hurts who were you know I think you'd say were limited when they were at Alabama right there's a reason Hurts got got um, supplanted by Tua and then he goes to Oklahoma and all of a sudden he's competing for a Heisman Trophy and so Lincoln Riley has that kind of reputation Napier doesn't have that kind of reputation and so I think he's going to give it up right next year he won't be the offensive coordinator I think that's pretty clear Um, I'm not going to call for it now because I think again like you're you're putting your players now in a situation to be worse off than if you just proceed with the way you planned on doing things all season long. Do you make tweaks? Do you make slight adjustments? Stuff like that? Yeah. But if you just let Callahan call the plays and free up Napier, how's that any different than delegating, like t- calling Calloway, timeouts? And... Talking about Russ Calloway, the tight end coach? Yeah. yeah. I mean, whatever, right? So if, if you dictate somebody else to be the – like you're not going to hire an offensive coordinator five games in, which means you're giving those responsibilities to somebody else. If you give those responsibilities to somebody else, how is that any different than giving them other responsibilities, say with special teams or giving them other responsibilities with making sure you've got 11 guys on the field. Like there, there are like, you can work on delegating those things while maintaining the offensive coordinator title. If you want to, it's just, all you're saying is delegation, right? You're saying some of these responsibilities have to be delegated I think you probably delegate the ones that are less critical to the function of the team than the offensive coordinator right now. And then you bring in an offensive coordinator in the off season. Well, you also see the effect, like I really, the Kentucky game wasn't good, but I would think we would both say that Austin Armstrong has, has definitely had a positive effect so far on this Florida defense. So you get the chance to bring in, he's a young and upcoming guy that Saban had hired, hired him off the Southern Miss staff. So he's definitely a guy who's worked with Kirby smart in the past as well. He's an up and coming guy that has a good chance of being a head coach one day, but that adding that presence on the staff, that's an extra advantage. That's one that's helped for Napier. And that's what like, I, this isn't even so much an anti Billy Napier as the offensive coordinator comment as it is, as I think Billy seems to have a great eye as a CEO for uh, for recruiting talent. He's, he's great with recruiting on the recruiting trail. He's proven himself as an offensive coordinator. I don't think we have to have a big discussion about whether or not he's capable of it, but there's no way you could pay attention to every facet on game day when things are moving so quick. And, and it seems like this team – but when this team is missing these key details in the moment, it really – it seems to have a need for Napier's eye as the CEO. So I, I would almost say I'm more inclined to talk about the change in offense coordinator from that perspective than necessarily just the play calling, which I know the play calling hasn't been awesome to this point either. And there's definite Napier himself said it. 
this team deserves criticism after this Kentucky game, and they should get it. And I uh, and I do think this performance. But you know, I look at the season. You go through game by game. You analyze game by game. Every game's different. The Tennessee game looked a lot different in the Kentucky game. I do think that Napier is capable at that OC position. I think the offense is going to look a lot different with DJ Lagway, and maybe that's the plan. Maybe it's like, hey, they won't be complaining once I get this kid in here. Okay, maybe that's the plan, but I do think that CEO approach from Napier is something he's going to have to seriously consider after this season's over. Well, I think that's the key part, right, is that he's not doing anything about it now. So you can ask him about it. That's fine. Maybe it makes us feel better to ask about it. But for him to do something now to completely change course is stupid. Don't make a change now. Make a change in the offseason when you have a time to sit down. You're not emotional about it and you're making changes, um, you know, and you're making changes that you think make sense or make changes during the bye week where you have two weeks to make the changes that, you know, that old story about urban Meyer before the Georgia game going in and deciding he was going to put a fullback in his offense. Cause the offense was struggling there in 2005. I think that you can, you can talk about doing it then maybe, but you don't just make change to make change. You got to have a better option. Right. And, and so, um, yes, I think there are CEO things that could be better. Yes. I think there are all sorts of things that could be better, but you know, at the end of the day, to ask him to change now, I think is 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 in the emotion of a loss where you got your butt whipped. To just go make a change to make a change doesn't make any sense. That's a terrible process. I want him to make good process decisions, yeah. which means he should come to the conclusion at the end of the season that we'll get our butt whipped less often if we're not giving the other team ten points a game because of special teams and and oh. other stupid gaps. Although. Uh, Billy Lasko sounds great for this offense. I think, I think uh, he'd fit right in. (laughs) I'd really like to see a Billy Lasko at this offense. Let's, let's go, let's go figure that out. All right, let's, uh, let's move on here in in this Kentucky disaster here. Uh, Vanderbilt coming to town, homecoming. Boy, this is one you just got to get it done. This, you just got to get it done here. Four, Four game losing streak for the doors. Uh, Ben Hill Griffin on Saturday, I believe it's at four o'clock. Uh, two and four mark overall for Vanderbilt this season, including a fine 40 to 37 double overtime loss to UNLV. Uh, Vandy has not been particularly competitive against Kentucky and Missouri in SEC play play. Uh, Ken seals got the nod last week at quarterback after starter AJ Swan left uh, due to injury against Kentucky. I believe uh, Clark Lee hasn't been, Team, the team has not made the type of progress this year that I, I would have hoped to seen so far. I, I don't think uh, anyone who's been following what's going up there at Vanderbilt, uh, you know, would be too thrilled with what's going on so far up there for Lee. But uh, certainly a team that has some serious limitations. But you did mention, I, I'm not going to steal your thunder too much here. I was going to talk about their offense a little bit, Will, but I'll just lead off with the fact that Vanderbilt is uh, – um, defensively they, they're last in the sec allowing 36 points per game so might be the right team to visit the swamp for a, a struggling offense well maybe i think that's what we're going to find out i think we would say that charlotte probably wasn't that great of a defense i'd have to actually go look and see what charlotte was um florida uh, florida was able to move the ball up and down the field on charlotte just wasn't able to put it in the end zone i think that's going to be the key in this one is florida's gonna have to put the ball in the end zone when they get in the red zone they're gonna have some of those nine and ten ten play drives that's just who they are um, the question will be what can they do now look A.J. Swan played pretty poorly in the five games he was in there. QB rating of 129, seven and a half yards per attempt. Ken Seals, 162 QB rating, eight and a half yards per attempt. Um, Seals doesn't run very much, seven rushes for minus four. Um, Swan, though, 25 for 28, so wasn't really running that much either. Um, but they have a lot of explosive plays. I mean, on offense, they are they are eighth in the country with – 36, 20-plus yard plays. Now, they played an extra game, right, because they played that week zero game against uh, Hawaii. So they have played an extra game. But still, I mean, Florida Florida only has 18. So Florida would have to have 18 explosive plays in this game to tie Vanderbilt with a number of explosive plays. Now, given Vanderbilt's offense or given Vanderbilt's defense, that might be possible <laughs> because, as you mentioned, Vanderbilt not only is ranked 120th in points per game allowed, they're 100th in yards per play. They're 114th in uh in 20 plus yard plays allowed on defense as well so this is an opportunity for florida's offense to get healthy um and they're going to need to because i think vanderbilt has some offensive firepower that 
you know, you talked about Florida isn't a team that can come from behind. They're going to have to put up some points, put up some points early, make Vanderbilt chase from behind. And at that point, Vanderbilt's kind of like Florida was last year, which is they can score a few points every once in a while, but they have to because their defense is so bad that every time they go out on the field, they have to score. Otherwise, they can't keep up. Yeah, I'm looking at the schedule right now. Well, is this our last guaranteed W? I'm not as putting a Gator this fan. One. As a I'm Gator not, fan. I'm not putting this one in the guaranteed this, pile. This be, I think this Florida better be, this better well, be a guaranteed. Well, I will say two straight it's losses to Vanderbilt, trouble. and we're gonna have some different discussions about the offensive coordinator position, probably. But uh um we're, we're, yeah, I, we're, we better get it done. I know we didn't get it done against them last year, but I'm looking at the schedule here. Another reason why you have to take care of this, you got at South Carolina, you got a bye week, Georgia, Arkansas comes to Ben Hill Griffin. They've certainly been, their record's not awesome, but they've been competitive at LSU, at Mizzou, and then Florida State down the stretch. So it's going to be critical that the Gators get that fourth win here on Saturday against Vanderbilt. So this is definitely, I know it's Vanderbilt and people are, you're looking at like a get right game. I just called it a guaranteed win. Even though it's not, I know, I I know it's not, but it better be a win because the schedule is going to get real ugly down the stretch. And uh, this is uh, probably the easiest game left on the schedule. Well, and look, Florida's gotten, they got a poor, a poor, poor performance from Devin Leary on Saturday. Weren't able to take advantage. Got a poor performance from Joe Milton against Tennessee. Were able to take advantage. Had the third string quarterback for Utah in there, weren't able to take advantage. And now they're about to go through a stretch. AJ Swan or Ken Seals are going to be only quarterbacks who are on par or worse than Graham Mertz, at least from most metrics. KJ Jefferson, better player. Spencer Rattler, better player. Carson Beck, better player. Brady Cook, thus far this year, has been a much better player. Jaden Daniels, a way better player. Uh, Jordan Davis, or Jordan Travis, a way better player for FSU. So they're going to be facing some guys who. You know, I look at and just go, there's a major advantage at quarterback for those guys, which mm-hmm. means the defense is going to have to be lights out. And again, you're not going to be able to give that seven points a game on special teams if you're already coming in behind the eight ball at the quarterback position. So, um, yeah, you, you, you know, look, 17 points a lot against the Vanderbilt team. I, I think, you know, Florida should win by 17, but, you know, what have they really showed us to give us the confidence that they're going to, that they're going to do that? If they win by 10, how do we feel? Not great, right? I mean, we'll come in and say a win is a win. Winning in the SEC is a big deal, all that stuff. But then that would mean that you've had poor offensive performances against Charlotte, Kentucky, and um, and Vanderbilt heading into the rest of the schedule. I think we'd all be uneasy about that. So there, there's some stuff that I want to see on offense, and you know, they need to open it up a little bit, I think. Yeah, two wins off that remaining schedule sounds a lot less daunting uh, than three. So – but hey, who knows? Who knows with this team? But the one thing I really, the last thing I really want to leave people with here is I'm as frustrated with this Kentucky loss as anyone out there. I think that's a frustrating game. They not remotely competitive. We've certainly showed up very ugly in our two losses this year. But we saw just like we established a, a new floor with Kentucky. We also saw what the the ceiling could look like against Tennessee. So I do believe that this team has something in it. Let, let's see what the fight looks like down the stretch to at least like, I, let's just finish respectable, man. Let's finish respectable. That's the thing that I, the, the Kentucky game, the Utah game, the two things that, that you saw in common there, that level of sloppiness is just, that. that's the thing that, that drives me nuts. I can handle the loss. If we go out there, we play hard, we're tackling well, and they, we get beat. I can handle it. But it's the the total sloppiness. That's the thing. I think we can clean up. We can only control what we can control if we clean that stuff up. I think this looks like a different football team, and it's a it's a tough out. We should be a tough out for everyone down the stretch. That should be the goal on this schedule. Will yeah, I mean, look, obviously that's what we're looking for. I think you know Bud Davis. If anybody hasn't followed him at J J Bud Davis, has a bunch of really good stuff out there mm-hmm. about tendencies. On the offensive side of the ball, basically from the pistol position, Florida runs the ball like 65% of the time. And whenever there's two high safeties, they only run the ball 4% or they only pass the ball 4% of the time. So, and they pass very heavily out of non pistol situations. So when the running back is next to the quarterback, um, and if you can predict 
at a 75% clip what the offense is going to do just based on formation, that's a problem, right? Defense is going to be able to – defense is really going to be able to do some stuff. So Bud's suggestion, I think this is a good one, is you just need to, you need to start breaking tendency, right? You got to start running out of the set you've been passing out of. You got to start passing out of the set you've been running out of. You can't be predictable every time you get in those things. Obviously, you know, look, you mentioned that they had that in – that they showed something in the Tennessee game. I'm not doubting that they showed something, but in many ways that was fairy dust. They were 7 of 8 on third down in that first half. They went 0 for 6 and on third down in the second half, and all of a sudden the offense sputtered again. This is an offense that's going to have to convert 55 60% of its third downs to really be effective. They haven't shown the ability to do that in any at any time other than the first half against Tennessee. Um, and then the big thing to me is that ETN, is, because of the limitations in the offensive line, Montreal Johnson's a different kind of runner, right? Like once he gets ahead of steam, that is a guy who can really finish off a run. And those seven, eight, nine, ten yard runs last year, where he got three to four yards of of steam before he got touched, he was very, very effective. If he's getting touched right at the line of scrimmage or just past it, he's not as effective as ETN. And so, skewing the carries over towards ETN, I think, makes a lot of sense. Get him out of the kick returner spot. Put somebody else back there. Sacrifice a couple of yards on special teams, or tell the kick returner just to take a fair catch and start at the twenty-five. Florida's starting field position has been awful anyway, so it's not like having ETN back there has really been doing doing all that much for him. Keep him as healthy as you can, but you're going to have to give him 20, 25 carries. That's just the reality. And then I think you need to run Mertz a little bit more. I think, I think you're going to have to take some risks. And one of those risks is, is when the defense is dropping eight guys and they've got a really light box, take advantage of it and run the quarterback up the middle. There are some opportunities to do that. Are you going to gain 15 yards on those? No, but if it's second and eight and you gain seven, that was a really successful play. Go ahead and do that. And what it's going to do is it's going to make the defense come up, start filling those gaps. They're not going to be able to have four guys in the box anymore. And all of a sudden things start opening up either behind those linebackers or even further downfield. So there's a lot of stuff they can do. We'll see whether they actually do it. The tendency stuff I think is the most important and probably the most damning when it comes to the overall um, the overall profile of the team. Because, look, if if folks like Bud, Bud's a really smart guy, but if folks like Bud are picking up on tendencies that are that strong, you can bet that Mark Stoops picked up on it too, right? Mm-hmm. They've got advanced scouts. They've got guys who run the analytics. They know. Now, that's on Florida too. Florida's got an army. Florida should have guys – who also are picking up those tendencies, understanding what's going on, knowing what they're doing in different circumstances. And that then has to get back to Napier, right? Like from a play calling perspective, he's got to be less predictable when it comes to those play calls, what the formation is, all that sort of stuff. So hopefully they've seen that too. I'm assuming that they saw that Kentucky knew what was coming a lot of the time this week and they will make the adjustments, but um, you know, that's what they get paid to do. They get paid an awful lot of money. So um we don't, so we get to be wrong a lot and, uh, you know, be critical when when it's warranted, I suppose. Well, let's hope we see some adjustments going forward. Uh, tough loss at Kentucky, but turning the page, that's a great part about the season. You don't think that Oregon State bowl loss or any bowl loss. You sit there, you got to dwell on it the rest of the year. That sucks. Get to turn the page next week. We got homecoming here in Gainesville. Uh, Vanderbilt's coming to town. This should be a get-right game for this team as they head into a brutal second half of the season. Uh, But big opportunity on Saturday against Vanderbilt. Let's get it done. Will, any final words before we head out? Ah, Just channel Billy Napier and Bill Belichick on to Vandy. We're on to Vandy. We're on to Vandy. I think I had that as the – I think I had that as the – as our image on uh, – YouTube last week. We're on to Kentucky after the Charlotte game. So that didn't work out so well for us. So I don't think I actually want to say that. But it hasn't worked out uh, well for Belichick the last couple of years either. So yeah, uh, no, the Charlotte game was ugly. I, I just I thought of that. I'm like, we're on to Kentucky. Well, that didn't work out so well. All right. Let's go. Gators uh four o'clock SEC network against Vanderbilt in Ben Hill Griffin Stadium for homecoming. Let's get a W and head to the back half of the schedule with a four and two record for Will Miles. I'm Nick Knutson. Have a great weekend, everybody, and go Gators. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to Stand Up and Holler. If you're interested in more information from me and Nick, you can go over to readandreaction.com. You can like and subscribe our YouTube channel here at Read and Reaction, or you can go to patreon.com slash readandreaction to support us, get extra information, and we do ask anythings over there every once in a while as well. So check us out. Thanks for listening.